we are living in a world that is becoming more and more secular. And as a result, it's becoming more and more antagonistic towards Christianity. Christian beliefs are being challenged from every direction. Beliefs on gender, sexual ethics, and truth are under attack. Our culture is questioning whether or not there are more than two genders. They're even going as far as to say there are 72 genders. They claim that a man can get, become pregnant and a woman could become a man. The question of uh, sexual ethics and say that homosexuality is not a sin. It is safe to say that our world has gone cooking for Cocoa Puffs. And if you challenge any of their beliefs, you're the one that's called crazy. You're called the bigot, unloving, and sometimes even a Nazi. And those attacks are not just coming from TV shows or movies, but from our schools, our jobs, our neighbors, and even from our own family members. We are witnessing attacks from every corner of our society. So the question is, how should a Christian live? How do we respond to the challenges that are steadily rising against us in our culture? Does the Bible even help us in this? Well, I believe that the Bible does help us to answer, and it shows us how we should live. And I believe that Peter specifically addresses this issue. So open your Bibles to 1 Peter. We'll be in chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 and 2. 1 Peter, verses 1, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bethania, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let us pray. Father, we are just so thankful that you have given us the gift of faith and that you brought us to you. You draw us and you wooed us to you and you gave us eternal life. By your grace and mercy, let us worship you and serve you. Let us be witnesses of your gospel that it is the power of God. Help us today to hear your word and not just be hearers of your word, but also be doers of your word. Anoint us today that we may be receptive of your word. Open our hearts that the word of Christ may dwell in us richly so we can bear fruit for the glory of your name. Amen. Peter is writing to Christians who are experiencing immense suffering. They're experiencing the same suffering that you and I are experiencing today. They too are being attacked for their faith. And Peter is writing to them to encourage them and give them hope. Because one of the things that suffering does is it makes us question God's love and care for us. But Peter is encouraging them in the midst of suffering. He is writing to the, to the prosecuted Christian, not only in their time, but throughout church history. Because the history of the church is a history of persecution. 
Christians throughout history have been beaten, mocked, and killed for their faith. But more often than not, we assume that this persecution only comes from kings, governors, and rulers. But persecution can also come from ordinary Christians, I mean, ordinary citizens. This is exactly what was happening in Peter's time when he wrote this letter. These Christians were being prosecuted by Roman, regular, everyday citizen. They were mocked for their faith. And the reason why these Christians were being persecuted was because they refused to worship the Roman gods. This is often the cause of persecution. Christians are persecuted because they refuse to worship another god besides Christ. The Romans didn't care that the Christians were worshiping Christ, but they were angry because they didn't worship Christ with their Caesar. We saw it in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar did, did not care that Daniel was worshiping God. He was angry when Daniel didn't refuse, refused to worship the God of him. So believers in Peter's day refused to worship their false god. And as a result, they amidst refused prosecution. And because of this, Christians are criticized, mocked, and discriminated against. And some were even brought up to court on trapped up charges. Believers were suffering because they were living a godly lives and were doing the right and good thing, and others suffered for the name of Christ. Peter, therefore, is reminding them that their suffering would lead to glory. Look at what he says in 1 Peter 4, 13 and 14. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and, the, and God rests upon you. Peter was encouraging them in the midst of suffering because they were suffering for Christ. And to suffer for Christ means that we will also rise with Christ. They're sharing in his suffering, therefore they will also share in his glory. And Peter not only reminded the believers here in this letter, but believers throughout the church of history they too and we too will share in the glory of Christ. And Peter is also encouraging the believers and reminding them that God is in control of the suffering. And they're allowing the suffering for their lives for two purposes. One of them is to help us grow in our faith. Look what he says in 1 Peter 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, through now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing of your faith, more precious than gold, that purchased through it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor in the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we should not be surprised when God allows suffering. Second, we suffer as a form of judgment against unbelievers. First Peter 4.16 says this, Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, 
what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Our suffering is a form of a gospel message to unbelievers because they reject the gospel message. And, that by, and by that, they're storing up judgment against them. Because of that, Peter is writing in a letter to encourage them in their suffering. And the first thing that Peter reminds them is of their election. The Apostle Peter begins his book by introducing one of the most controversial topics in the history of the church, God's election. This doctrine has made some people uncomfortable. And I don't want to dive too deep into this topic, but as a reformer, I want to highlight and why I believe that election is a biblical. And the first question that needs to be asked is, what is election? Well, election means to be chosen, to be set apart. God has chosen us and has set us, up, set us apart for him. Most people will agree with that. But what gets confusing is, how does God choose people? What role does man's will play in their election? I believe that Peter gives us three aspects of that election. He gives us first the grounds, what is the basis of our election? The second, the means. How does he bring about this election? And the third is the purpose. Why are we elect? Let us first begin with God's, with the grounds for election. What are the grounds for our election? Peter tells us that, that we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. When people hear the word foreknowledge, they automatically jump into God's foresight, what he sees in the future. In a sense, they are right. God does see the future. But this is not what the Bible means when it talks about foreknowledge. Is that how God, or is that how God, um, God elects people? Does God look down the corridors of time and sees who will believe the gospel and who would not? Does, it, does he then choose for salvation all those he knew would choose to believe and guarantee their world and reach, and reach in heaven? I think what the Bible means by foreknowledge is has to do more with God's sovereignty. How does God work about that election. And the scripture is clear that God is sovereign over our, over our election because salvation belongs to the Lord. He chose, he, he chose who to save. Jesus told the disciples in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. It clearly states that here that God made the choice first, not man. God, out of his wisdom, chose whom to save. So then what does it mean that when the, God, when the Bible says that God chose it according to his foreknowledge? Well, the word foreknowledge is a mixture of two words, the word for and, not, and no. The word for means before, and the word no means to love. Combine them and you get the word foreknowledge, which means that God foreloved us. God gave his favor to us. One commentary defines it as to set one's love on a person or persons in a personal way. 
God has set his love towards us. This means that the grounds for our election or the reason for it is, is God's love. And this love is not based on our ability on the creature, but on who God is. The Apostle John says this, we love because he first loved us. What motivated God to send his son to save us? It was his love. So yes, God does see in the future and who would choose him. But that was the reason why God chose us. God chose us because he loved us. For God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world. This is a true definition of love because love does not seek to, love does not seek, love does not seek to do but to respond. Jesus told the crowd in Matthew 5, 30, 14, 44, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus commanded us to love those who hate us because he did, this, he did the same thing. You and I were enemies of God. We hated God. We wanted nothing to do with God. But God loved us when we were his enemies. Romans 5, 7, 8 says this, for very rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proved his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us when, he, when we loved our sins. So out of his pure love for us that God chose us, it had nothing to do with who we are, but who God is, and God is love. It is out of God's loving nature that he chose us. So then, so how then does God bring us to him? This brings me to my second aspect, the means for our election. Peter says, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. The outworking of God's choice of the elect made in eternity past begins in time by the sanctification work of the Spirit. God's plan of, of election is made real in the life of the believer by the working of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit draws us to him by producing us faith to believe and also produces us the ability to repent, to hate our sin. The Spirit produces in us regeneration and we are reborn again. As Pastor Enrique preached two weeks ago, we know we now have a new nature because of the Holy Spirit. And also the Spirit separates us from the world and adopts us into the God's family. We become children of God. Romans 8.16 says this, the Spirit himself bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit separates us from sin to God, from darkness to light, from unbelief to faith. The Spirit works in us to make us obedient children of God. It is through the working of the Spirit in our lives that gives the, the ability to believe and to be saved. Pastor Enrique brought this point out 
several weeks ago when he preached to the third chapter of John in the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus did not believe because he was not born again. So the question is, why does God give us his spirit? This brings me to my third aspect of election, the purpose of election. And Peter says right here, for obedience to Christ Jesus. We are elected so that we can obey Jesus Christ. Now, though believers may not obey perfectly or completely because of indwelling sin in the lives and hearts of believers, but what believers become is more accepting of the gospel. We delight in the law of God. And the reason why we delight in the law of God is that we have been freed from the power and dominion of sin. We are no longer under the power of sin. We now have the ability to say no to sin. We have the power to resist the world, to resist Satan, and to resist sin. Because greater is he who is in me than is he who is in the world. And as we grow in our Christian life, we become less and less prone to sin. And the Holy Spirit guides us, our thoughts and our actions and our will to move further away from sin and to conform it into the image of Christ. This is an important point because one of the themes that you see throughout the book of Peter is that he tells it in the midst of suffering, be holy. We are saved so that we can be holy. This is the application point that Peter always goes back to. He tells the believers facing persecution to be holy. But why? Why doesn't Peter tell us to protest or to stand up for our rights or so that Christian lives matter? The reason why Peter tells us to be holy is because holiness is what glorifies God. 1 Peter 2.12 says this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Unbelievers should see our holiness and, and, and glorify God. Unbelievers should also see our holiness not only in our words, but in our action. We don't, we don't need to just talk about holy, God's holiness. We need to show God's holiness. One of the errors that we make as Christians in a Christian circle, especially the reform camp, is that we assume because we are saved by grace and not by works that we set aside God's law. We no longer believe that God's law is binding on us or that we are called to obey God's law. Yes, it is true that we're not, that we're not saved by works, but we are saved so that we can do the law. It doesn't mean that we are exempt from obeying the law. We are saved so that we can fulfill the law in Christ. And when believers see us obeying the law of God, they will see that the God that we serve is holy. And by our good deeds, we will put them to shame who mock us. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This is the reason why Christians are often mocked. 
because we chose to be holy. And we do not enter into the ungodly and unholy lives of unbelievers. And for this reason, we are exiles. We chose to live differently. And brings us to my second point. We are exiles. Because of our, our relationship with Christ, our relationship with the world has changed. We are no longer citizens of this world. We are exiles. But what does it mean that we are exiles? To be an exile is to be a person who has been barred from the native country. It is to be homeless. We are homeless because we have been barred from this world. We have been put out. We have no home here on earth and have become scattered people. The believers in Peter's day were viewed as exiles because their home was not here on earth. Peter was referring to Israel in the Old Testament. When Israel left Egypt to go to the promised land, they were exiles. They were sojourners. And we too are sojourners because our home, because we too are heading to our promised land. And our promised land is in heaven. So therefore, we are foreigners and sojourners in this world. Therefore, we have a different culture. We view life differently. We don't share the same values in the ways of this world. So then how should we live in this world? Given the fact that we're foreigners and strangers. Well, Peter doesn't tell us to withdraw from this world, but instead we're called to live in this world as you would expect a foreigner to live in a foreign country. That is respectfully. We are called to live in the world and participate in this world to the extent that we don't violate God's word. Because some of us take this extreme road and completely detach from the culture. But I believe that's a mistake. We can enjoy this world. We can enjoy certain movies, music, TV shows. As long as those things don't cause us to sin, we can enjoy them. But we must never forget that this is not our home. We are passing through because we are exiles and foreigners and we'll be mocked and ridiculed because they think that we're strange, because we live differently. And the reason for this is because this world is under the rule and the power of the, of the prince of the air, and they are sons of disobedience. Their father is Satan, and they do his will. They are murderers, they are thieves, they are slanders and haters of God. And they, not, nothing, they want nothing to do with this God. They don't understand why we do the things that we do. They're natural people, so they don't accept the things of the Spirit of God. Because to them, it is folly. And they don't have spiritual discernment. So they don't understand, why do we, why do we love this God? Because the world wants nothing to do with God. They don't want him or us here. Because this, world want, because this world wants nothing to do with God, so they make our life difficult. Because our God offends them. Because they love this world. 
because they are of this world. And John says this of this world, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and their part of life is not from the Father, but of this world. And those who are of this world follow the ways of this world, but not the Christian. The Christian has no home in this world. He is different from this world. He is from a heavenly world. His citizenship is in heaven. Because of this, because the citizenship is in heaven, we will live forever. Because the God whom we serve has eternal life. And he has given us this eternal lives and, and for those who believe in him. And because we believe in him, we will dwell with him forever in heaven. And in heaven, there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more suffering, and all things will be made new. That's why the Christian longs to be at home. He knows that this world is fading away. He knows that this world, he knows that those who live in this world will not live forever. He knows that there is coming wrath. And God is going to destroy this world. The believer has tested the goodness of the Father, and he longs to be with him. He recognizes that, this, that is, there is better, is, he recognizes that there is, it's better to be one day in the house of the Lord than a thousand years elsewhere. Because he knows that with God, there is fullness of joy in his presence and eternal happiness. But why do we have confidence like this? Why do we have hope like this? We hope because of Christ. Because of what Christ did for us. This leads to my last and final point. The suffering of Christ is an example for us. Peter mentions another phrase that should give us hope. In verse 2 he says, for the sprinkling with his blood. The sprinkling of the blood was part of the Old Testament ritual service in which the priest would offer an animal sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Christ's blood gave us that forgiveness. Christ offered his life as our final and ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Christ died in our place so that we don't have to die. Christ took our punishment for our sins. And Christ entered into our world so that he can suffer for us. He was our forerunner. He set the path for us. First Peter 1.21 says this, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, having, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his footsteps. Christ gave us an example for us to follow because the same suffering that we experience, Christ himself also experienced. Just like Christ suffered, we too will suffer. And all that Christ went through, we too will also experience. Christ was rejected by this world, so we too will be rejected by this world. Christ was rejected by his own people, so we too will be rejected by our own people, by our own families, our co-workers, 
our neighbors. This means that some of us may not get that promotion that we want. Christ was mocked and ridiculed and outcast. So we too will be mocked and ridiculed. Christ was beaten and killed. We too will be beaten and some of us might, be get, might get killed. Since we are his followers, we too will receive the same treatments. We are no, we are no different from our master. But Christ endured all the suffering because of the joy that awaited him ahead. Hebrews 2, 12, 2 says this, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and I see it at the right hand of God, of God the throne, of the God the Father in the throne. And just like Christ endured the suffering because of what awaited him, we too should endure the joy that awaits us. Christ saw this momentary affliction that did not compare to the glory that awaited him. This is the theme throughout the book of 1 Peter. He's telling the believers that just as Christ endured the suffering of this world, because he knew that the glory that awaited him was much better, and that he was willing to take the beating, and he did not curse back. He hoped and trusted himself to him who judges justly. And we should have that same mindset. We too should endure the suffering of this world because of what awaits us. The glory that which we will receive because of Christ does not compare to the momentary affliction that we endure in this life. Christ's suffering brings us hope because just like we will suffer with him, we will also rise with him. Christ was exalted and he rose. He received the glory so that we can share in his glory. And we too will share in the glory when he comes again. And as I close, this is our hope. Christ endured so that you and I can endure. He gave us, he gave us an example so that we can follow his footsteps. Our goal is to await the second coming of the Lord, but in the meantime, to remain holy. Even when the world is headed in the more and more in the wrong direction, we should not let us deter us from awaiting God's coming. We should not let affect our conduct, and our conduct should not and our conduct should reflect the character of God. So the unbelievers will be put to shame. So let us walk in the spirit so we don't glorify the, so we don't gratify the, the passion of the flesh. You have a greater calling. And the Bible calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We have been rejected by this world, but not by God. God chose us and he has received us with loving and open arms. Therefore, live in a way that glorifies God. Me and Enrique have a saying that we say to each other all the time, for the sake of the gospel. We endure suffering and pain and mockery for the sake of the gospel. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for this message. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us life. Thank you that you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, that we may dwell with you. And through this power of the Holy Spirit, 
we receive faith and grace. And we ask us that you bless us today in the name of Christ. Amen.